Rivez sous moi. Mais non. Rivez sous moi. Mais non. Racine basile. Du peuple. N'en demande pas d'aller. T'as un jour règlement pour mettre une habitation moins. Négio sont des raisons moins. Bilolo. N'en demande pas d'aller. T'as un jour règlement pour mettre une habitation. Négio sont des raisons moins. Dans ton télé, la reine te lave moins, les gars sont des raisons moins dans le grand chemin. Well, hello. Hi, Patrick. Oh, what's going on, Mimi? I'm good, thanks. How about you? It's been ages. Yeah. Because on your election page, it says you an inaugural dean. Are you like, Yep. The dean now of the global school? I am. The dean is of the global. The global school is one of the newer schools at WPI. And so I just got here about two and a half years ago, started okay. this new position. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. If you indulge me, we could do the, uh, the, the uh, mobility justice book then. But I've always wanted to do the two articles on the, uh, the early formation of the republic. The yes. present democracy. And I, I, I see here as I'm reading it, I'm like, I wonder if Jean Casimir, you know, took inspiration from what you wrote back then to write his book, The Haitians, you know? Uh... Uh, I mean, we were in conversation over the years. And so, I mean, I think he influenced me as much as the other way around. But we, we've loved talking to each other when we have met. I guess I'll start with where did the title come from the army of sufferers peasant democracy and the early republic of haiti yeah so but so the art i mean so there's two articles i think you're referring yes. to and, and the other one i'm sorry the other one is you sign my name but not my feet which right is, which is one of my favorite new haitian proverbs by the way <laughs> <laughs> yes so all of the terms that i refer to here came from the archives. And so I was doing, first of all, let me say, this was like more than 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. So it's been a long time since I was a PhD researcher and I was working with 19th century historical archives. And I was had, you know, all that time to really do a deep dive and really read a lot of material. And I would be on the lookout for th anything that gave me little like clues of the life of everyday people in Haiti, because so much of the archives, it's like government officials or, you know, missionaries, stuff like that, consul generals, and occasionally newspapers. And, and I was looking at missionary archives and government letters, consular letters. And I would just sometimes find these little phrases, these little glimpses that someone would quote or mention. And one of them was this phrase, vous signez non moi, mais pas ma, pied moi, right? Mm -hmm. So I was like, first of all, it was, was quoted like in Creole, the way it was written. And you could tell it was like an authentic statement coming from what were what they called the paysan, the peasantry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I loved when I would find stuff like that. And the same goes for 
the name, the Army of Sufferers, that was what the PK rebellion, the PK rebels called themselves. They called themselves l'armée souffrante. And I was like, wow, that's an interesting name that they call themselves. And especially when you think of how that word carries forward. And I associated it with Rastafarianism in Jamaica, where they talk about themselves as the sufferers. Mm-hmm. But And you hear that in like reggae songs. So this kind of language in Creole is what would really jump out from the archives. I'm going to start at the back of your conclusion at the back of the article, The Army of Sufferers, as sort of a way to, to, you know, to sort of frame the discussion we're going to have today. This is, this is what you wrote. You, you broke down basically three definitions of democratization. We'll go through each of them one by one. So the first one is you said democratization is not simply an internal process of class struggle, but always occurs within an international context in which multiple causal mechanisms interact. So that's the first one. Can you shed some light on that one for us? Yeah. So democracy, I was I was studying at the New School for Social Research, and there was a big cohort of faculty and students there who were studying processes of democratization, of social mobilization, of social movements, and of revolution. And so I was, you know, trying to work on theorizing about how does democracy come about. And what in the United States, we're usually taught about it from the, you know, the colonial perspective of mm-hmm. the American Revolution and the French Revolution and kind of the overthrow of kings and this, you know, progressive story of a kind of enlightenment and then democracy coming. And I I was really interested in a in a more complex understanding of how there are these like in struggles from below for democratization. By from below, I mean from by like workers and by enslaved people, actually. And how did they insert themselves into this process that it's is not just about overthrowing a king and starting a republic, but is actually about how do you implement a kind of freedom, kind of liberation that was associated with some of the, the ideals of republicanism and democracy in the late 18th and early 19th century. And so they were always in a battle with the external powers that were trying to maintain the system of slavery. So every movement for democratization was battling not just the sort of state locally, but also, you know, the United States and Britain and France and Spain, all of whom were fighting over the Caribbean. How did the the peasantry escape the archives? Uh, that's enough a great for you question. to see them. I, I yeah. love that question because like I was saying, it's these little moments where they appear. And I actually use that phrase about, you know, you signed my name, but not my feet as a metaphor for archival discovery in a way, Mm -hmm. which is that we can find some words or some traces in the archives of, like I said, some of the, the things that people said or the actions they took, but so much of what went on in 
everyday life kind of is is material it's it's in material actions and practices and patterns of life that don't leave a written trace in the archives but that does leave other kinds of traces and and so that's why I got really interested in learning about contemporary Haitian culture about different kinds of memory and cultural practices which you might find in voodoo in land holding and and different kinds of agricultural practices in belief systems and phrases and language those are all different ways that people preserve the the kind of oral history and the everyday material culture which are things that are harder to find in like the written historical archives so there is a kind of and i and i relate that to the idea of like the silencing of the past that mm-hmm. michel rolf triot wrote about but also the whole tradition of of historians kind of studying some, what they call subaltern groups. Here's what you wrote. Although metaphorically located on the periphery of the 19th century world system, the Republic of Haiti was very much at the center of the processes of democratization and de-democratization that shaped the Atlantic world. What, is, what do you mean by de-democratization? <laughs> right. That was, I mean, one of the most amazing things for me about studying Haitian history was how central it was, right? How important it was to everything going on in what we call like the Atlantic world. So because of this this break, this, you know, huge event of the Haitian Revolution, there was a way in which it created a... a I mean, it was called the Black Republic. You might almost think of it as as like a black hole at the center of the Atlantic world that that the rest of the the white slave owning plantation, you know, slave trading economy of the world, which is what all the other countries were engaged in, they were terrified of this, and they didn't want to be sucked into this black hole, this powerful vision of this alternative of a liberated republic. And where slavery had ended, and where all people who were would be equal, right? All people would be called, as it said in Dessalines' first constitution, all Haitians will be noir, and noir would be like the identity of every citizen of Haiti, and to the exclusion of foreigners and and others, and invited invited all people of African descent to come to Haiti to become a citizen of Haiti. That was terrifying to the slaveholders all around Haiti. And, and, and yet at the same time, despite that incredible like gravitational pull, it has nobody talks about it as the origin of democracy. Nobody talks about it as the origin of freedom in the, in the mainstream historiographies that, that were written by the white plantation owner owning world and the republics that came out of that. And so, the demo- that's the democratization part and why Haiti is so important to understanding that. And most people don't realize that Haiti had a democratic republic and, and a constitution. I mean, there was a chamber of deputies, there were elections, it was a democracy. That's that most people don't think of it that way. And then the de-democratization part is that there was always a struggle and a pushback to hold, by some groups to hold on to power. 
And throughout the 19th century, you see even when slavery ends, even when republics are founded, when people gain citizenship, there's a pushback against them. There's a reaction. And just like in the United States, slavery ended, we had the Reconstruction era, and then there was the pushback, which we call Southern redemption and the, and the Jim Crow period. That happens everywhere in different ways, but it happens everywhere where there's a backlash against democratization. Can you tell me, and the time period you covered in this article, what's the time period you cover here? You remember? <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I mean, roughly from the eighteen forty-three. Yeah, uh, and so I, I, I mean, I, I sometimes I, I dip back a little bit to the period right after the Haitian Revolution, and then I, I focus a lot on the eighteen forty-three, where there's this what's called the Liberal Revolution against mm. Jean-Pierre Boyer, president. Mm-hmm. And then it's followed by the PK rebellion in 1844. That's mm-hmm. that's the real focus. And then you touched on you went you went ahead a little bit to, to the 1860s too for a little bit just to show right. that it Be- it popped up a little bit uh, because that. I yeah. was comparing Jamaica and what was called the Underhill Rebellion, which happened in Jamaica in 1865. And so the, these moments of the 18, mid 1840s and the mid 1860s were really important political moments. Boyer is always portrayed, based on the literature that I've read so far, as just sort of this steady thing. And I think he ruled over 20 years or something like that, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And, and that's pretty much, but not, that might be the limit of what I read, but I, it wasn't until I read this article and you got a little bit deeper into his administration that I'm, I'm beginning to see different layers of it. Can you sort of Give us a, a summary of what the liberal revolution was all about in 1843 versus the Piquet Rebellion in 1844. What was going on? What was Boyer doing that he wasn't supposed to be doing in terms of serving the needs of the peasantry? Talk to us about that. Yeah. Liberal revolution and then the Piquet right. Rebellion. And so first, it's important to remember that it was Boyer who signed the indemnification deal with France. And I mean, and France forced it on him, really. And it was first agreed in 1825. And then there was an adjustment made to the payments in, I think it was 1838. And so it was after 1838 that a lot of tensions arose because so much money was being pulled, revenue through taxation was being pulled out of the economy and then just paid to France being, you know, sent out of the country. And people were upset about that. And there were also issues going on in terms of the the unification with the Dominican side of, of Hispaniola. And so there was basically two camps. And one, you can see it as there's a sort of a landowning class who arose after the revolution through these land distributions that were made to the military, basically to every different level of military rank. They were given land. And so there's like a sort of power base of those people. And then there's the people who are like the farmers, the small farmers, the paysan, the peasants, the the kind of workers on on the land who don't, didn't never got that land distribution. So about 
one fifth of the population of men are in the military, and so probably benefited from the land distributions that were made by by Pétion and by Christophe. And then the other like four fifths of the of the men and women of the country don't own land; they don't have land. And so there's kind of a struggle going on between those who are still in kind of benefiting from the power of being a military uh, leader and having land holding and the people who are trying to fight that. And there's a color and class division that happens in across that, not, not entirely because there's another saying which says that the, you know, the, the, person who's black but wealthy and educated and can read and write it still can be in the elite and count as what they call a mulat and a mulat can be poor and have not be educated and they would count in the black population so it's not a firm color line exactly but it's like a class and educational line and so those two groups are fighting against each other so you have the kind of the the ones who represent the state this kind of militarized state power and then you have first a liberal revolution, which wants to sort of bring a different element of, of the population to power. But beneath that, you then have the Piquet rebellion, which is the the working class, the farmer, the peasants and farmers. Who's leading the Piquet? This wonderful per- figure, right in the in the history, who's called Jean Jacques Act. Akau. And I'm not sure of the pronunciation. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Like, I've asked many people, they can't. <laughs> right. I've never heard it, how it's supposed to be pronounced. So I always say it kind of like Akau or something like that. It's, it's got A-C- that double. A C A. Like A C A A U. U. Yeah. So it okay. Yeah. Akau. Like yeah. Akau. Okay. He's this amazing character because he is described in various, you know, like a reportage from different people who who were saw him on the scene. And they say he appeared barefoot at the crossroads wearing these kind of rough white clothing that peasants wore, a straw hat, and he proclaimed himself as a like leader of the people and of this people who armed themselves with these eight to 10 foot sticks that were sharpened and had a poison gum on the tip of them. So they would cause you harm, even if you weren't like fatally wounded initially. And the, and he called together all of these people to defend basically the rights of the poorest people, the working people, the and the formerly enslaved people, basically, who had been like the field workers, the ones who never rose up in the ranks of the army, maybe, and who never got the land distributions. These were the people who are being affected by the code rural. So the, the rural code, first created by Toussaint Louverture, but then in Boyer's time, a rural code that was very controlling and tried to force these people to work on other people's land. Right? It, they were trying to sell these export crops especially coffee, but sugar as well. And they needed workers. And so they were trying to make all the working people stay where they were, not allowed to move around, had to do work, had to sign that a contract to, to do work. And they 
and they resisted it and they didn't want to do it. And they tried different methods to, but basically what you would call like disciplined labor and the laborers didn't want it. The laborers wanted their own way of living on the land, farming for themselves, holding their own family land holdings and benefiting from that. And that's what the Piquet Rebellion was fighting against. So they were fighting kind of the bourgeoisie and the, and the wealthier landholders. How did the Petit Maonage figure into all of this? I've always been fascinated by, by that, like how, how the downtrodden some t- you know, sometimes exploit the system even though they're a part of it. Can you talk a little about that? Like they serve the system that's oppressing them, but at the same they manipulate it for their own ends. Yeah, and, and that comes back to that idea that you, you signed my name but not my feet because if you if you sign a work contract, you can earn some wages and and the and the people who own land were in a position where they they tried sharecropping. It didn't really work. so then they they tried different methods and so that but they ended up trying to pay wages. And yeah, people want wages sometimes. They want some money because money's useful for buying certain kinds of things, but they don't want to be stuck there working really long hours all the time and not being able to go somewhere else and for example take care of their own small crops and and you know hillside growing that they might have and so there's always a struggle between the effort to make the workforce stay and work for the big export crop versus people trying to grow things for their own food for their own living and maybe for small marketing internally of the sort of small edible crops. The Haitian people actually were very, very successful at resisting wage labor on plantations. They did not do it. They did not stay in place and work for others. They always got back to their own land holding and their own family land, the Laku and their own internal trade, which was done by women, carrying all that food to the markets. And this huge thriving economy grew in that way. And the thing is that built on the tradition that you refer to uh, under slavery of petit marronage, because enslaved people also did this and also resisted and did, you know lived their own lives in that way. And that's what the Haitian people carried forward and still do. I love this. Uh, you wrote this, and I'm probably going to use it as my signature in my email. You said resistance is precisely being able to work both with and against the system at the same time to defy power, even while appearing to serve it. Mm-hmm. Yep, and that you know is the definition, in a way, of a kind of resistance because resistance doesn't always mean you're going to like win and overthrow the entire system. And, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, for those of us who've gotten older over time and, you know, you go through wave after wave of hope and optimism and mobilizations and social movements, and then things don't really change. They change a little, but then mm-hmm. there's still another fight to be fought. Well, Haitians have known that for a long, long time, that there's always going to be another fight and that's why they don't give up because they pass down the tradition that you don't give up. You you keep finding a way to resist and you keep moving forward. So can you talk about, I mean, this was like a first to me, that 
the Haitians came, you found in the records the idea of communism predating Marx and Engels. <laughs> yes. Can yes. you? T- <laughs> I don't want to call it, you know, Haitians. I'm not, I don't want to say Haitians, you know, uh, were the first. <laughs> so maybe I don't know. What do you say about that? That's that's that was pretty. Uh, that kind of that was shocking. Yeah. Talk about that. No, it's incredible because you know they're the what we think of as these like Western political traditions coming out of Europe. They have deeper roots in the Caribbean, and the the whole idea of communal forms of landholding and collectives and a kind of uh, a critique of property comes out of Caribbean traditions and it, and particularly in Haiti but more broadly i i believe that like people who experienced enslavement were the ones who understood that you should not have property in people. It is wrong to have property in human beings. And they also understood land in the same way that it might be wrong to have property in land because land and people are one and people live and, and, and thrive and, and you know have families and con- continuity of generations when they have land. And so they developed a very sophisticated critique of what we call capitalist, you know, commodification of human beings and of land. And and that's what we forget so much when we talk about the struggle against slavery. Part of the struggle against slavery is also about people's connection to land, food, water, to like living ecologies, and that these are also spiritual they're material and spiritual, and that it's all one. And those are some of the kinds of fights that are still going on now. And so in in the you know, in the middle of the 19th century, European commentators understood this and they and they were horrified by this and they called them communists. And they, they said, We, you know, this this you know, communist kind of thinking is gonna destroy their system, which was was a capitalist system. I want to talk to you about the signs of control, because I still see this plaguing the 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 what Robert Fatton calls la machine infernal in Haiti, which mm-hmm. is this sort of entrenched bureaucracy, which is basically the largest employer in the country, and unless you in that cohort, if you're outside of it, you're moon on the you're not going to receive any of the benefits from the plundering that's going on internally inside the uh, La Machine Infernal. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about the land distribution, the government land distribution? Because they all did it, right? Christophe did it, Boyer, mm-hmm. Pétion. Like, if you, you mentioned the size of the military at this time was, I forgot which pay was like about 40,000. Mm-hmm. And then... Most of the land distribution, you know, the colonels get 25 caro, you know, 15 caro for a battalion chief. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of profit motive within the military yeah. infrastructure in Haiti? Right. At the time? And, and so that, you know, that, like you say, it goes right back to the beginning. And what it represents 
in, in some ways you could say, okay, it's a distribution of the spoils of the revolution, right? Like that, that they won, they captured all the plantations and they're then distributing it. But what's also clear is that the government has no way to pay salaries. They are unable, they don't have the money to pay their, their soldiers. And so once the revolution kind of ends and the state's forming and they want to protect the country from outside invasion and, and, and just to like run things, the way they pay off people is with land, basically. And so they have that hierarchical sort of distribution and it, it happens in 1809. And then again, in 1814, Pétion makes an even larger distribution Interestingly, he also distributed smaller land grants to government employees, hospital employees, and members of the judiciary. So mm -hmm. those were all the ways to sort of pay them. And, you know, it it's buying people off, but it's buying their loyalty, but it's also them buying into the system because they're now going to be the ones who benefit from the system. So it's it's interesting. And it was only men who were given land, like women were not given land distributions. But yet the taxes were collected from the women. <laughs> yes, yes, because what the women kept hold of was the, the internal trade and all the markets were run by women. And it's it's just a fascinating story of how certain, what were called the, the big, the marchands, who are like the larger market women or merchant women, they sometimes, in some cases, built up a lot of profit and a lot of capital and invested it. And they, they owned buildings, they owned land, property in, in the city. And then they also ran the networks of the other women who would then carry the goods. So the big marchands, these women, would buy on credit from foreign suppliers who were bringing in, you know, goods from Europe or any any or from other parts of the Caribbean that people wanted to purchase, and then they would distribute it out through the network of the Madame Sara, the mm -hmm. sort of ambulant market women who would walk from the city out to the countryside and sell things. And so this was all done on debt, and there was a very complicated system where the the debt would be taken out against the coffee crop. The coffee crop would be like consigned to the foreign merchants who would advance the money to the marchands who would buy the goods, who would distribute the goods. And then all these smaller women would have to be on credit. You know, as they took the goods out, they had to make sure they kept track and brought back the profits. All of this got taxed. And so the state lives off the tax revenue that they collect from this whole marketing system. You said Pétion had, uh, quote, republicanized the soil. Mm -hmm. I love that. Recording same with me on that one. Yes. The, it must have, as someone who's sort of one of the founders of the uh, mobility uh, uh, movement, would that be fair? The mobility paradigm, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the mobility paradigm. It must have been fascinating watching the women, because that's one of the things I get a lot, questions I get a lot, like, why don't you cover more about, you know, Haitian women during that period? So hopefully you wrote something in, in that, that, that reader that uh, Alyssa Seppenwall mm -hmm. had about that, didn't you? Maybe I'll cover that with you some other time. Yeah, I have written about women and and in particular, the, the article called Sword-Bearing Citizens, yes. Militarism and Manhood in 19th Century Haiti. That was a fascinating article to write and to research because 
It was how do we understand women, the history of women in Haiti when there are not that many direct sources from women themselves. Most women were not educated. They were illiterate. Um, we see flashes of them like in these archival documents. But what I realized as I was looking, as I was studying gender history, I realized that there was tons of expression of gender identities through manhood and masculinity and virility and men and brothers and fathers and soldiers. And they were describing themselves as like coming to the rescue of their mothers and daughters and sisters and to the Republic itself as the mother of African liberty. And so there was all this gendered language, which gave a lot of insights into this sort of intersection between this political economy and the functioning of gender within families, because the family was held up as like a model of the sort of national family, and then how that influenced national politics and the state itself. You wrote this, can we think beyond resistance and begin to grasp some more positive forces of peasant agency? How did formerly enslaved reconstituted peasants tried to rebuild their lives and freedom? How did they work around the military state and its effort uh, to control them? I uh, I read that to you because <clears throat> I saw a recent study that says that <clears throat> in the 1990s, the Munandeyo constituted about 60-something, 65% of the population of Haiti. And now it's flipped. It, Haiti is more urbanized now mm-hmm. than it is rural. What do you What do you think? What does that say about? It was easier to define that, you know, in the nineties and provide solutions, perhaps, if the majority of population lived a certain way and had done so for generations, right? Yeah. To use that as a model to to move forward. When now, because of external decisions, now Haiti is more urban than it is rural. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I when I started the kind of research I was doing in the 1990s, there were still a, there was a bigger rural population, although it was starting to change already, obviously. But it was still enough basis of it there that you could see origins and the history of the that rural population going you know, way, way back to the 18th century and the early 19th century, you could see the continuity of life, you know, ways and culture and so on. And the structural kind of adjustment programs, the kind of World Bank and IMF programs, the eradication of the Creole pigs, the the centralization of population in Port-au-Prince, the urban is the huge urbanization, all happened kind of from the 1990s till now really has changed, you would say, the structure of the country. And and in a lot of ways, you know, it's tragic and it's sad because that was the basis for a more positive social and economic and cultural system to still emerge. Like it, we could have come into the 21st century with a much more positive outcome than we are seeing right now. And right now, we are seeing like the worst collapse of the democratic republic tradition of Haiti just into like this abyss of violence. And 
it didn't have to end that way. I'll put it that way. How does that affect mobility when a large swath of a population had more freedom being out in the role and now they're confined? Like, let's say Port-au-Prince, for example, right? From what I understand, it was, it was it's, infrastructure-wise, it's built for about half a million people. Now there's close to three million, right? Right. So, yeah, what does that do for this whole mobility when, you know, Yes, you may not have had a, a mansion out in the in, in the rural areas, but you could feed yourself, you could feed your family, right? You could exchange with the local laku, you can have a confederation, right? Like right. you have more mobility, and now you're in an urban setting, and there aren't resources to meet the basic needs, right? And and so the, you know a couple a few different things happen. First of all, you have a push of out-migration, right? And we see people leaving Haiti when when they w- have been able to in, in these moments of kind of economic desperation. And then you see the influx of gangs and the gang control of neighborhoods is to kind of provide for what the state is not providing in a way for people who have no resource base of their own, right? No, no, they can't grow their own food. I mean, some people do a little bit. And the disruption of the of that rural economy that supported so many people, and also of the remittance economy, it has to be said, of like the diaspora, who also supports people, mm-hmm. left these gang power holders able to be like, the, to claim the role of provisioning and infrastructure and and kind of meeting the needs of of different neighborhoods and communities on a very localized basis, and and it, so it's become like a a war all against each other, you know, rather than a positive, more regionalized development of like forms of what might be called food sovereignty, or you know, people being able to provision themselves and their own families and save enough for education and all of the things that used to be the sort of wish and aim and like the dream, the, the Haitian dream. Mm-hmm. You're prescient in that sense because you, you quoted this, Constitution c'est papier, bayonet c'est fait. Mm-hmm. Institutions are paper, bayonets are iron. So I guess we're in the bayonet phase now today in Haiti. Yes, absolutely. And and when I when I quote that, you know, it's a, it's a comment on the internal politics of Haiti that you know the 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 state was controlled by military power holders and by force in so many cases despite what the constitution said but i also use it to refer to the larger situation of haiti in the world which is that they are also at the mercy of the bayonet of the gunboats of the military power of the surrounding great the great powers who you know, from France and Spain and England and then up to the United States today, ultimately control the the sort of destiny and fate of the whole region. That's all I've got. Okay. Professor, anything? Did I miss out, out on anything here you want to cover? No, that was great. I mean, I, we can pick up on further conversations in the future, I think. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you for your time.
Not a lie. 